the whole idea behind this series is that we believe God is in the business of taking new ground. That from the beginning in the book of Genesis where God's mandate to Adam and Eve is subdue and cultivate, rule and reign, what he was calling them to do was to expand the borders of Eden, to bring the presence and the peace and the person of God into a ruly and chaotic, an unruly and chaotic world. And from that moment all the way through to where we are today, that is still what God is doing. That God is in the business of bringing light into dark spaces, of bringing healing to a hurting world, and most importantly, bringing salvation to a people that desperately need it that in the kingdom of heaven, the borders are constantly expanding. And what we're really trying to hone in on during this series is that God actually tends to do that through us. Despite the fact that we are broken and mucked up people that get a whole lot wrong, despite the fact that we we, we don't really listen to him that well, God actually uses us as his instrument to break new ground. That God does, does not need us. And yet, like a good, good father, he delights to work through us. And so what I'm going to do quickly is I'm going to summarize what we've been walking through in the book of Acts. Because if you actually stop it and look back at what we've been covering, what you will see is it's the story of God breaking new ground again and again and again. So so when we started in Acts chapter 1, the very start of the year, what we saw was the Great Commission. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And what he was calling, he was calling his believers to go out and authentically represent Christ to the world around them and to to break new ground wherever they went. And that's exactly what happened. At the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches the first sermon and 3,000 people get saved on the very first day of church. And as it happens, barriers of class and wealth and religion, they all come tumbling down as new ground is taken, as both the religious and the irreligious, the tax collector and the fisherman, the Pharisee and the leper, all of them come to faith in Jesus Christ. And from there, what we saw is that the gospel could not remain bound. It could not stay within the four walls of Jerusalem, and people start coming in from surrounding regions just to hear the good news of Jesus. And then one day, Stephen gets Martin. And everyone freaks out, and it looks like this whole movement of God is going to come to a halt, but, but God uses the mess of that moment to again take new ground. As all of a sudden, the followers of Jesus, they find themselves in places like Samaria, where, where hundreds upon hundreds of people start coming to faith. And again, what happens as the gospel enters into those spaces, walls are broken down. As century-old rivalries and differences in belief are are removed by the power of the gospel. And and look, where we're jumping into things tonight, we're at this moment, this precipice where everything is going to shift. Where again, God is going to come into the picture and he's going to break new ground, where God is going to come into the picture and tear down walls and barriers and the kingdom of heaven is going to be brought into a new space. You see, up to this point in the story, all those people I listed as coming to faith, all of them had done so via means of Judaism. That everyone who's been saved has actually already been Jewish, or the Samaritans who believe pretty much the same thing, and so they all sort of followed the same sort of rules, the same sort of traditions, the same sort of beliefs, and, or else they adopted those beliefs and then became a Christian. 
But what we saw last week is God was bringing together these two really different parties, Peter and Cornelius. And they're coming from completely different ends of the spectrum, and he's bringing them together in order that the gospel might be directly preached to the Gentiles. So on one hand, we've got Peter. And and Peter is is a faithful Jewish Christian. So he still holds on to all the, the, the faith and practices that he would have grown up with. He's probably still saying the same prayers he's always prayed. He's probably wearing the same clothing and religious iconography that that all the other Jews have worn. And importantly, he's following the same dietary restrictions as everyone else. And then on the other hand, we have this man called Cornelius. And Cornelius is both a Roman centurion and a Gentile. So he is definitely not Jewish. Uh, So he's a man who, who does actually believe in the one true God, Yahweh, but he doesn't follow the rules. He doesn't follow the traditions and the practices of the Jewish faith. So he wasn't allowed in the temple. Uh, he hadn't been circumcised. And importantly, again, he ate whatever he wanted to. And as always, if you have questions about circumcision, Sandy is well-versed and happy to take those at the end of the service. <laughs> but, but look, what, what we've seen is God has taken these two parties, this, this group of Jewish Christians with Peter and, and this group of, of Gentiles with Cornelius, and he's brought them together. And he's brought them together so that the gospel might be preached, so that walls may be broken down and new ground taken. And that's right where we're jumping in. Right at this point where Peter's about to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And all I'm going to do tonight is walk through what he says. So we're going to go verse by verse through his proclamation of the gospel. And all I want to do is show you guys that the gospel changes everything about everything in your lives. Does that sound good tonight? Awesome. Uh, So Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, and let me just stop there for a second because can we just agree, it sounds like it's going really well for Cornelius so far, right? God shows no partiality. In other words, salvation is open to every nation. No one is disqualified, no one is kept out, no one is barred entry. That that what Peter is saying here is, hey, God actually doesn't have any favorites. That that yes, he chose the Israelite people. Yes, he, he rescued them out of captivity in Egypt and he brought them into the promised land. But but God's plan from the start was never that they would be his only people. In fact, if you trace your way through uh, the the Hebrew heritage all the way back to Abraham, God's promise was that through him, all the nations in the world would be blessed. That God does not pick favorites. So look, I I reckon Cornelius is there, he's in the front row, he's hearing Peter preach and he's going, yes, this is what I've longed to hear, this is what I've always wanted to hear, that I can come into a relationship with God. But then Peter finishes off his opening address. Truly, I understand, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That that yes, the, the offer is open to everyone, no one is barred, all you have to do is fear God and do what is right. So in other words, all you have to do is have a, a perfect and complete and uh, holy understanding of who God is and, and your, his role in your life as sovereign Lord and, and that you fear him in the correct way. And then on top of that, everything you do, you need to do perfectly. So you need to do the right thing for the right reason in the right way 
every single time. So if you can just tick those two things off, if you can just do what is right and fear God, if you can just be perfect, then you're good. Then the kingdom of God is open to everyone. No one is disqualified. See, what I think Peter's doing here is he's sort of setting Cornelius up. And the reason he's doing that is so that he can jump, use this to springboard into the gospel because the truth of the matter is no one can do that. No one in and of themselves is able to do what is right and to fear God. In fact, in the book of Romans, we're told no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together all have become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one. And just in case that doesn't cover the fearing God bit, if you jump a couple of verses down in Romans chapter three, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, no one can tick those two boxes. That the truth of the matter is we aren't just bad people who need to do better. We aren't just disobedient children that need to learn how to follow the rules and do what is right. We, we are dead people who need someone to bring us back to life. We, we are sinners who desperately need a savior. And it doesn't matter how well we keep the rules. It doesn't matter how good we are at following instructions or doing the right thing because it's never gonna be enough. We're never gonna be perfect. We're never gonna do the right thing the right way every single time because there's something inside of us that is desperately broken. And the word the Bible would use to describe the thing inside of us, it is sin. And look, if you don't believe me, let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever taught a child how to lie? You ever gone up to like a little three-year-old, maybe some of you have kids here, and then you say, look, when someone comes to you and they ask you something, you tell them whatever you want. You make up stories, you, you tell lies, as long as you feel good about yourself, as, as long as you get what you want, you, you, just, you, you lie. No, we don't have to do that. We don't have to teach children to lie. We don't have to teach a little kid how to bite someone, or at least I hope no one's ever done that. Uh, you never have to teach a little kid to be angry or prideful or selfish, and yet somehow, every single human that comes out of the womb comes out like the seagulls from Nemo, going, mine, 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 mine. See, again, the truth of the matter is we actually have a sin problem, that there's something inside of us that is desperately broken, but more often than not, what we try to do is we're like, no, I'll just try a little bit harder. I'll just do what is right, I'll work for it, and, and then eventually God will accept me. Eventually I'll be right before God. And look, for sure, I think that's the place that Cornelius would be coming from. Because if you jump back a, a couple of verses in Acts chapter 10, what we're told is Cornelius was a devout man, and he feared God along with all of his household, and he gave generously to the poor, and he prayed continually to God. So look, if I'm Cornelius, I'm sitting there going look like, yeah, I tick the boxes. Yeah, I, I do the right thing. Yeah, I fear God. Surely, surely I'm acceptable. And the only problem is that's the exact same mindset that the Jewish people would have had. And they've got a lot more rules, a lot more right things that you need to do in order to come into relationship with God. Like they would turn to, to Cornelius, this Jewish, this Gentile man, and say, look, sure, you believe in God and you give to the poor, but... Do you honor the Sabbath? Do you, do you go to synagogue every week? Do you maintain a kosher diet? Do you, do you present the proper sacrifices? Do you do all the other things you need to do in order to be right with God? See, church, the problem with, with trying to, to 
earn your way into a relationship with God, with having this list of things you need to do in order to be, to be right with him, is that that list will never end. I mean, even if we could do some right things every now and then, how good is good enough? Is 50% good, good enough? Like, if I balance out all my good acts with all my bad acts, is, is that enough? What about 45%? Is it like C's earn degrees in heaven? Is that how it works? Do I, do I need an A plus? Is it like 90%? If 90% of what I do in my life is good, is that enough for me to get into heaven? I mean, what is the situation? And if that is the case, if there's some sort of pass mark we need to get into heaven, at the very least, surely God owes us like a mid-semester report card, right? Like, like halfway through our life, an angel should pop up and, and hand us like a little book and say, okay, here's your report card. Here's how you're doing so far. You're gonna need 75% good actions in the rest of your life and then you'll get into heaven. And, and let's just be honest, if that's the way it works, some of us are kind of like, well, we're over. It's like we're at that point in the semester where we realize we need 205% in the final exam in order to, to pass the course. So, so, so what's the mark? Like, how, how is this gonna work? Uh, well, Jesus actually gives us some indication. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he's talking about this sort of idea, and he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, so unless your right activity surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there you go, there's at least one passing grade. Uh, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So let, let's play that through. Um, what are some things the, the Pharisees did? Bible memorization, Okay. I know many, many of you have memorized many verses. In fact, I'll prove it. Let's do a bit of interactive preaching. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave. There we go, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Awesome, mostly there. Uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my. See, you guys can learn Bible verses. What are you guys talking about? Uh, well, do you know how much of the Bible the Pharisees had memorized? The entire Old Testament, word for word. So they're, they're beating us a little bit there. Um, okay, tithing. Let's talk about tithing because everyone loves talking about money at church. Uh, I, I know many, many of you are, are really good with, with how you, you give your money to the church and to other operations, and it's awesome. And, you know, that the, the paycheck comes in in the first 10%, it's straight to, to wherever God is calling you to give it, and you don't just tithe on the, the net, you tithe on the gross because you want God to bless all of it, and that's amazing, God's gonna honor that, but you know how finicky the Pharisees were with tithing? There's this verse in the book of Matthew where we're told the Pharisees tithed their mint, their dill, and their cumin. That they're so concerned with, with ticking all the boxes and doing all the right thing that they would go down to their veggie patch, they would chop off 10% of the little, the little herbs and they would give that to God as their tithe. I can guarantee none of you are tithing your spice rack. So they, they beat us there as well. See, the truth of the matter is no matter how righteous we are, no, no matter how much we, we try and push and, and do all the right things and follow the rules, our own good works are actually never enough. That the truth of the matter is we can't do it, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And, and look, I know I've sort of just honed in on that one point over and over again, but the reason I want, I want to stress that so much right at the start of the message tonight is because, yes, the gospel 
is open to everyone. God shows no partiality. Anyone from any nation, from any kingdom, from any background, that the gospel is open to everyone. But what's more important for us to understand tonight is that everyone actually needs the gospel. That the gospel isn't just something that, that bad people need. It's not something that, that religious people need. Everyone needs the gospel. And so, look, all I'm going to do with the rest of our time tonight is just walk through what that is. Walk through the explicit gospel that Peter is going to share with these Gentiles. All right, verse 36. As for the word he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. You yourselves, you know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. All right, so, so Peter's first point in explaining the Gospels to the, Gentile, to the Gentiles is that Jesus lived the life that we can't live. See, as we just saw, in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to fear God and do what is right. And even though we can't do that, even though it's impossible for us to actually tick those boxes, Jesus could do it. Jesus never sinned, he never fell short, he never lied, he never cheated, he never stole, he never lusted, he never disrespected his parents, he never held unrighteous anger. He was in every way the image of a sinless and perfect man. And look, I know the sort of response we can have to that. You can say, well, if he's supposed to be the son of God, if he's supposed to be God, then of course he never sinned, he's God. And that argument doesn't quite play out because what we're told in Hebrews is that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is in every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. In other words, Jesus faced every temptation that you guys face. He's been tested in, he was tested in every way you are tested. He, he went through all the same struggles that, that you guys go through. He fought the same battles you fight in your life. It's just that he never failed. It's that he never fell short. He never chose to succumb to the pressure or choose the easy way out. He was in every way perfect. And that is really, really, really important. It's really, really good news for us because what we're told in the Bible is if we have surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we get that right activity. We get that right behavior credited to us. That 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we earn our own righteousness, not that we work our way to a right standing with God, but because of the finished work on the cross, we actually become the righteousness of Jesus. To put that another way, we get Jesus' perfect record accredited to us. It would sort of be like this. So imagine I asked you guys to do a PhD level maths exam. And if you've got a PhD in maths, pick some other topic that would be impossible for you to complete. Uh, and like, there's no way you can pass this, right? And so you get there, you sit down, and I hope I'm not giving flashbacks to people that have finished uni, but you're doing this exam and you fail every question. Like there's nothing you know how to do. You've got to skip every question. You go back, you still don't know how to do it and you're just stuck. 
You're going to get zero out of 100. And then midway through this exam, this math genius walks in. And he sits down at another table. He gets given the exact same exam, and he aces it. He gets every question right. He shows all his working. He doesn't make any rounding errors or any other mistakes. He even writes little comments to the marker explaining what he's doing just to make sure he gets 100 out of 100. And then the, the exam finishes, and you walk up to the front, knowing you failed, knowing that you've got not a single mark on that paper. But then right before you go to hand it in, this math genius turns to you, and he switches papers with you. And on the, on the perfect paper, the one that's got 100 out of 100, he writes your name. And on your dodgy zero out of zero paper, he writes his name. And that's what gets handed in. But church, if you have given your life to Jesus, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your sins and your failures and then those times you stuffed up. He looks at you and he sees Jesus' perfect works. In fact, if you've trusted in Jesus, God actually looks at you and he says the same words he spoke to Jesus at Jesus' baptism. That this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That, that if you have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, God looks at you and he says, I'm pleased with you. I'm proud of you, not because of anything you've done, not because of your own good works, but simply because the finished work of Jesus is credited over to you. And so Peter goes on, verse 39, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That yes, Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, but despite that, he died the death that we deserved. See, because God is holy and because God is just and because God is righteous, there has to be repercussion and consequences to the failures in our lives. To go back to the exam analogy, if, if we're not the ones bearing the consequences for that terrible exam paper, someone else has to. And that person is Jesus. And look, something I often hear in response to that as well, that doesn't sound particularly fair. And what I think what we, the tendency we have when we ask that sort of, when we say that sort of comment is that, well, couldn't God just have forgiven all of us? Couldn't he have given us all an A plus and, and not punished anyone at all? And look, this is where the exam analogy breaks down a little bit because sinning isn't just like failing an exam. It's like breaking the perfect laws and the perfect rules of a perfect God. In fact, that's actually all the word sin means. Uh, it's an archery term that literally means to miss the perfect standard, to, to fail to hit the bullseye, to, to fail to live according to God's rules for how we're supposed to live. And the consequences of failing and falling short of the perfect standards of a perfect God, it's death. It's eternal separation from his presence. And God cannot just ignore that. Because if God were just to ignore our sin and our brokenness, that would make him unholy. And if he were just to sweep everything under the rug and say, look, it's okay, we'll just ignore it, we'll pretend it didn't happen, that would make him unjust. It would, be, it would make him sort of like a, a judge sitting trial over a mass murderer, and, and all the evidence is there, and at the end of the trial, the judge says, innocent, and just lets everything slip you would turn to that sort of judge and say, no, that is an unjust judge. 
See, the truth of the matter is, is we don't actually want fair. Because if God were to give us what was fair, what was due to us, then we would get the punishment Jesus got. We would get the consequences. But in the greatest switch up of all time upon the cross, Jesus takes our punishment. He takes the separation from God that only our sin deserves. And so not only do we get Christ's right standing before God, Jesus actually comes along and he takes the punishment that we deserve as well. And so verse 40, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. We who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. All right, so Jesus lived the life that we can't live. He died the death we deserve. And then thirdly, Jesus rose again on the third day. And again, this is such an important point and something we often miss as Christians and believers because the gospel doesn't finish with the nails going through Jesus' hands and feet. The gospel doesn't finish with Jesus hanging on a cross. The gospel doesn't even finish when they take him down and they put him in a tomb. The gospel finishes with the stone being rolled away and the tomb being empty. It finishes with resurrection and newness of life. It finishes with the old being gone and the new having come. It finishes with new creation and resurrection life. See, church, upon the cross, what happens is Jesus takes care of our sin problem. He pays the price. He bears the consequences for our sin. He defeats the darkness. But in his resurrection, he breaks new ground. In his resurrection, he secures our future with him that the resurrection, it, it, it robs death of its sting. And it gives us hope that this life is not all there is. That one day there will come a point where everything is renewed, where every tear is wiped away, where every evil thing is undone, and we will, like Jesus, be raised into new and perfected bodies, and we will stand before God the Father forever. That is what the empty tomb points to. And it is so, so important in the gospel. And look, Peter is turning to this crowd, this crowd of, of Gentiles who are listening to him. And he's like, that is what we saw. That is what we witnessed. That is what we experienced. That for three years, we walked around with the man called Jesus. We heard his teachings. We, we sat under his, his parables and his stories. And then one day we saw him being arrested. We saw him hanging on a cross and we saw him being taken down and placed in a tomb. And then three days later, we saw the fact that the tomb was empty. We saw the risen Jesus. We held the nail-scarred hands and feet. We, we talked to him. We ate with him. And it's true and it's real and it is the gospel. And then Peter summarizes up the entire thing with one amazing sentence. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. See, church, the whole everyone who fears God and does what, it right, does what is right, it doesn't work. Because no one can do it except for Jesus. But this line, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness, that works for every single person. That the gospel says to everyone. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you grew up going to church or you didn't darken the doorway of a church until you were 21. It doesn't matter if you're 10 years old or 100. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. 
It doesn't matter if you're an Australian or you're an immigrant. It doesn't matter if you're covered in tattoos and you smoke or you wear a suit and you drive a Mercedes. It doesn't matter what you've done or how long you've been doing it or who you've done it with. It doesn't matter because the gospel is open to everyone. And not only that, it's open to everyone who would believe. And that word believe, I've tried explaining this so many times and I don't think I've ever done it justice, but it doesn't just mean believe that. It doesn't just mean cognitive assent to a fact. It, 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 believe in would probably be a better uh, translation. The Greek word there is pastua. See, see, right now, each and every one of you, you have pastuoed in something. Your chair. Okay, bear with me, this is going to make sense. Each and every one of you, you are trusting in your chair. At some point in this, this evening, you came into this room and you looked at that chair and then you trusted in it. And maybe some of you can remember that moment. Maybe you, some, some of you came in and you analyzed your chair. Uh, maybe you, you went away and you, you looked up the, the manual and you, you read all about the chair. Maybe, maybe you're an engineer and you've got degrees that, that tell you this chair is gonna be able to hold the weight of your life. But I can bet a whole bunch of you didn't do that tonight. It, it just happened. And without even realizing it, you started trusting in your chair. But see, whether or not it was conscious, there was a moment in your life when you put your trust in the chair, when you leaned back into it and you put the full weight of your life into it. You put your belief, your faith in it, and if the chair can't hold your weight, if this whole thing isn't true, if the chair is not a firm foundation, then you're gonna fall down with it because you've put your whole life into that chair. You've trusted your life with that chair. That, that's what pastua means. That's what believing in something means. You put the weight of your life into it. That at the end of the day, belief is not a matter of theology, it is not a matter of understanding, it is simply a matter of trust. It's trusting that Jesus did actually live a perfect life. That, that he actually died the sinner's death that we deserved, and on the third day he rose again, and somehow, somehow that counts for you. And finally, for everyone who believes in Jesus, they will receive that you receive your salvation. Uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. But again, our salvation is not something we earn. Because you know what you do to earn a gift? Nothing, you, you simply get given it, you receive it, you take it, you've done nothing to work for it, you've done nothing to earn it, you don't deserve it, but you receive it, and that is what our salvation is like. And church, that is the gospel, that everyone who believes in Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And so verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. That Peter doesn't even finish his sermon. And I don't think you guys realize how awesome a moment that is because you guys don't get up here and preach that often, but the, the way we structure sermons, the way we, we set these things up is that they reach a point where hopefully we can get you guys to, to sort of make a decision, whether that's giving your life to Jesus or, or starting to get baptized or whatever the application point is from the message. And we've got to build our way up to get there. And, and if, you know, if everyone was going to make a decision at the end of the service, we'd just do it at the start, uh, then I wouldn't have to get up here and preach and we could all get home a lot earlier. But for some reason, everyone waits till the end of the message. <laughs> 
But, but Peter, he doesn't get to the altar call. He doesn't get to the invite. He doesn't say, everyone come up if you want to make this decision, that they've heard enough and they've trusted, that they've pursued in Jesus and, and they don't need to hear anymore. And, and evidently, neither does God because he sees their heart and so he pours the Holy Spirit out upon them. And verse 45, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then you get this amazing moment where, where Pentecost is repeated. And there's probably fire, there's probably sounds like a mighty rushing wind and, and people are speaking in tongues. And it's like God is putting his stamp of approval, his, his seal saying, these people, these people that you don't think can come to me, they are mine and they have entered into the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone now withhold water for baptizing these people? Those who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. That Peter turns to this crowd and he says there needs to be a response. That if the Gentiles have actually received the gospel, if they've actually received the Holy Spirit just as we did, then they need to be baptized. That it's an outward symbol of an inward working of the, of the heart. They would go down into the water and declare what Jesus has done in their lives. And look, at the end of the day, that is all baptism is. It's a symbolic act that represents what Jesus has done for you. That you go down in the water and, and in that moment you're just declaring that your old self is dead. That you have gone down into the grave with Jesus and as we bring you up out of the water, you're declaring to the world that you have been raised into new life with Jesus. And verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That Peter commands them to do it. That this amazing moment happens, Pentecost gets rehashed over and, and everyone's just, they've got no idea what to do. Uh, and I think the Gentiles, uh, sorry, the, the Jewish people, they, they couldn't believe that the Gentiles had actually received salvation. And so they're just sitting there scratching their heads. And, and the Gentiles, they didn't know what they're supposed to do. They hadn't had this experience before. And so Peter needs to get the ball rolling and he tells them, he commands them, go and get baptized respond to the gospel, do something in response to what God has done in your life. And so look, as we finish this off tonight and the band can, can come up, I'm not gonna command you to do anything tonight because that is neither my place nor my office. But can I just say the gospel demands a response. It demands you actually do something about it. Because at the end of the day, it's not just information. It's not just something you get to mentally assent to and say, yep, I, I believe that. You know, I believe Jesus lived the life I couldn't live. I believe he died the death I deserve. I believe he rose again. You don't just get to agree with the facts and move on with your life. Because if the gospel is true, if we're actually sinners who need a savior, if we actually are separated from a perfect and holy God and there's nothing we can do about it in and of our own strength that Jesus can, that changes everything about everything. It changes the way we live, it changes the way we think, it changes how we live out our lives and it demands we do something in response. See church, do you wanna know how God takes new ground? 
Do you want to know how barriers can be broken and lives be transformed? It happens when people accept and respond to the gospel. And look, tonight, in this place, right here and right now, I think there are some ways that God is calling us as a people to be responding to the gospel. But firstly, if you call Jesus your Lord, if you've surrendered your life to him already and you haven't been baptized, may I just humbly submit to you that he is calling you to do that tonight? Not, not to earn your salvation, not to somehow tick off the box and, and work your way into a right standing of God, but simply as a response to the gospel. Simply as a public declaration to, to everyone here, to the world around you, to your family, that Jesus is your Lord. And if he tells you to do something, you do it. And it's just declaring that you have been saved and you have been bought and you are his. And, and so look, in a second, we're actually gonna have two baptisms tonight. And... Um, we're gonna praise God for that. We're gonna worship. We're gonna make a whole bunch of really loud noise because that's an amazing decision. It's an amazing uh, moment of obedience and faith. But if, if you are here tonight and God right now is just tugging on the soul of your, you're tugging on the strings of your heart and he's saying, come and get baptized, I would just invite you, just come and line up. We won't make you get up here and do a, bapt, uh, get, do a testimony or, or do anything you don't wanna do. We've got spare shirts and towels, so that's not an excuse. <laughs> We just wanna help you take that step of obedience. But if you're here tonight and you've already done that, that doesn't mean you get an out because the gospel always demands a response. And maybe your response to the gospel is you need to start sharing it. That if you're honest with yourself, you, you know Jesus is Lord, you know he gives you new life and you're sort of keeping that to yourself. And, and you know there are people in your life that actually need to start hearing, you need to start sharing the gospel with because they need to come into a relationship with Jesus just like you have. Maybe your response to the gospel is to start serving. That, that you love Jesus, you, you love coming to church, but if you're honest, you, you just do it so that you can be filled. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be filled, but the body of Christ is called a body for a reason. And I'm telling you, there are parts of the body of Jesus that are hurting and lacking because not all of us are doing our part. Not all of us are stepping into the place God has called us to. Maybe your response is to start tithing or to join a small group or to start reading your Bible or to just having a devotional time or to start praying or to start coming along to some sort of program or, or whatever it is, I don't know. But I think right now, a whole bunch of you do. I think right now the Holy Spirit is, is, is tugging on your heart, is, is nudging you, and you know what you need to do. And again, the gospel demands a response. That the gospel should change everything about everything about everything in our lives. And then finally, there's one last group, one last way I think we can respond to the gospel. So tonight, I think I've walked through the, the, the proclamation of the gospel about as clearly as I know how to do. And if you've never actually accepted that, if you've never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I, I wanna create a space where you can do that. And, and look, I, I'll be open, I'll be honest, that is not an easy decision to make. In fact, I would say it's probably the most difficult decision you will ever make in your life, but it is simple. And to steal something I, I do when I'm explaining this to youth kids, it's as simple as ABC. A, you admit it. You say, hey, I actually can't do this. 
that there's something wrong, there's something broken inside of me and I can't do this on my own. I can't do what is right and I can't fear God. And then B, you believe, you pursue it. You trust that somehow, somehow what Jesus did on the cross, that counts for you. And then C, you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You just turn to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I'm yours. Whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, wherever you want me to go, I belong to you. 